Well, uh, three weeks ago, I think, three weeks ago, when I was teaching last time, we began a series in Exodus, uh, but we didn't really spend any time in Exodus itself. We went backwards. We looked at the Exodus as a, as a direct connection from Genesis. It just flows one from the other. And we traced a line from creation all the way through, and we saw that as mankind fell from God and moved away from God, that sin begot sin begot sin. And we looked at the fall of man and man's exile from God. And we also saw God's mercy and grace. We traced that line through as well. His promise in Genesis 3 of a eventual seed that would crush the head of the serpent. And then we saw the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we talked about how those names, they were very important. God communicated himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob multiple times throughout Exodus. And we looked at his promise to those men and their descendants. And so this evening then, we actually come to the book of Exodus chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Exodus chapter 1. And I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then we'll get into it and talk about what we see here in chapter 1. I'm reading from the ESV, uh, so whatever version you have, you have. Follow along with me. Beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. 
Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. At the beginning of Exodus, we see a list of the sons of Israel. They're not listed in birth order necessarily, so if you're looking at that list and perhaps wondering uh, why they're in the order they are, uh, they're listed by their mothers. If you want to see the birth order, you can go back into Genesis uh, 46 or 35 to see that. We see this family here, and we see in verse 6, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So if we go back, Abraham had the promise, and he didn't see it fulfilled. And then Isaac, and he died, and Jacob, and he died. And now the twelve sons, and they all died. They all died. And they didn't see the promise fulfilled. But if we look back just at the end of Genesis in verse uh, or chapter 50, we see that Joseph believed that the promise would one day be fulfilled. If you look at the end of, end of chapter 50 in verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph believed that the promise was still going to be fulfilled at some point. And, but they're all, they're all dead. Everybody that we knew, all the names that we knew of, they have all died, and none of them have seen it fulfilled yet. But the people are fruitful. They have settled in the land of Goshen, uh, and I went and I looked on Google Maps and I was looking at Egypt. And if you look at Egypt, it's basically just desert. I mean, it's just desert. And right along the Nile, as the Nile's going up towards the sea, you see it's just lush and green. And then as it gets towards the sea, it branches out. It kind of looks like an upside-down broom. And right up there as it branches out and it's all green is Goshen. And this is where Israel's family has settled. It's lush. They are doing well. And you see here that they are growing. Look at verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased. Well, how did they increase? Did they increase slowly? Did they increase meagerly? Increased just a little bit? No, they increased greatly. They increased greatly. They multiplied and grew. They grew how? They grew exceedingly strong. And the land is filled with them. Notice the language in verse 7. It's very similar to language we see in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what do we see in Exodus 1 verse 7? The people of Israel were fruitful. They multiplied. The land was filled with them. This is very much they are doing exactly what God has called humanity to do. And with this multiplying and this strength, they would have gained power. They would have gained power and influence. When you go from a tiny little family of, well, tiny, maybe, of 70 people, and maybe if you have houses, you fill up a cul-de-sac in Goshen, and now you are filling the land, they're going to have power, physical power. They're exceedingly strong. Power of position. Joseph was influential. Their relative 
was very influential. He helped Egypt to survive a famine. He helped Egypt to become an economic power. And so the people of Israel would be gaining power. And they might be thinking, oh, this is it. This is it. What we heard from our ancestors, we're going to have a land. We're going to have so many descendants. It's finally happening. We're powerful. We have influence. All right, let's do this thing. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens. If you look at verse 8, we see that Pharaoh has other ideas. And chapter 1 is really, what we see here is two plans. There's really two plans in chapter 1. Pharaoh has a plan, and God has a plan. And we were, as we see here, we'll see both of those play out. Pharaoh has a plan, and his plan is ruthless and ineffective. Pharaoh's plan is ruthless and ineffective. Whenever a new ruler comes in, they have different ideas. They put in place their own policies. They have to make their mark. And so a new ruler comes in. Some people believe this ruler was a foreign ruler. And that's why he didn't know Joseph. When it says he didn't know Joseph in verse 8, it doesn't mean that he had actually never heard of him because Joseph would have been a very significant person in, in Egypt in their history. But it means that he has no care for him. He doesn't see the significance of Joseph. No respect for him. So the protecting umbrella that Joseph would have had over the people of Israel, his reputation and influence, is gone. It's gone. And when that is gone, we see that a new policy is set in place. Pharaoh goes to his people in verse 9, and he says, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Now, verse 9, he goes to his people. He's here in verse 9 and 10. He's taking counsel. That's a good thing. We should go to others and we should get counsel from them. But the way he lays this out and the counsel that he takes and the plan that he puts in place is ruthless. What is the problem? These people are too many. And he says, we need to deal shrewdly with them. Or maybe your, your translation says cunningly with them. The word here is actually the word for wisdom, but it's translated here shrewdly or cunningly because of how he plans to deal with them. He looks at them as a problem. And he says, really, that we don't trust them, these foreigners who are in our mess. We don't trust them. And we don't know what they would do if war would break out. Are they really on our side? And so he creates this excuse and he builds up this narrative that makes it very easy to put in place some foreign policy or domestic policy decision that says, well, we really need to consider national security here. If our enemies come in and they were to fight us, we have this people group here that we really can't trust. And so that's going to become a national security issue. So you know what we need to do? We need to deal with those people who are in our midst. And how are we going to deal with those people? We will put taskmasters over them. He makes a plan. Pharaoh makes a plan. We'll set taskmasters over them. We'll afflict them 
with heavy burdens. Interestingly enough, at the end of verse 10, he wants to subdue the people and to crush them and to push them down lest they multiply. So we need to keep the people of Israel from multiplying and growing. We need to stop that. But we also don't want them to leave, right? He doesn't just kick them out. Why don't you just leave? Listen, we'll give you some land. We'll let you go. You just leave because we think that maybe we can't trust you. But instead of that, it's like, no, no, no. We need to weaken this people so that we can control them and oppress them because we don't want them fighting against us, but we also don't want them to escape and leave. So they afflict them with heavy burdens. These taskmasters, if you go and you look at... Uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics, uh, you'll see them and they are shown as powerful. They often have a whip in one hand and a spear or a uh, sickle or something else in another hand and they are shown as very large. And then you see their charges or the slaves that are underneath them and they are weighed down. They are actually have large burdens on them. And it's almost as if they are crawling on all fours. And they're very small in comparison to these very large taskmasters. And in other, other depictions of these taskmasters, you can see them executing the slaves that are under them. And so this, this is how they plan to stop the people of Israel from multiplying This is not for the benefit of the people of Israel. And if we really think about this, we've seen this throughout history over and over and over again. That the nature of man can look at his neighbor and say, that person is a threat to me because they're different from me. And I don't trust them because they're different from me. And so I am going to crush them. I'm going to make their lives difficult. I'm going to kill them. The Armenian Genocide did this in 1915 to 1918. The Armenian men were killed, and then they took everybody else, and they marched them out into the desert. And the whole goal was, everybody, we're not going to feed them, we're not going to give them water, we will just march them until they die. The Holocaust did the same thing. These this Jewish people who are in our midst, we can't trust them, we'll blame them for our problems, and eventually we'll kill them. Our own country did this. We did this in World War II. It's almost the, uh, well, not the exact same thing, but it's, it's similar. We looked at the Japanese people who were living in the United States and we said, ah, we're fighting a war with Japan, but I don't know if we can trust these people who look different from us and are living here. So let's take them all and let's put them in camps out in the desert. Man's potential to mistreat his neighbor is great. Proverbs 12.10 says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. But the mercy of the wicked is cruel. The mercy of the wicked is cruel. So you think about this. You have a cow or or some other animal, and the righteous cares about the life of this beast, even if eventually they're going to uh, slaughter this animal and eat it. They care about it while they have it. They're not treating it particularly unkindly. But the wicked, even their mercy, is cruel. And so it is with Pharaoh. So it is with Pharaoh. He's not acting out of concern for fellow image bearers of God. He's responding in fear. He's looking in fear at what he sees around him. What happens if we're attacked? They might fight against us. It can be very easy to justify sin. 
can be very easy. I'm threatened, and so I have to respond. Leviticus 19.33, God tells Israel, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So, the people are reminded of this. This wicked action, this oppressive action by Pharaoh, his, really his first phase of his plan to deal with the people of Israel is to oppress them that they might not multiply. He's going to put his foot on the people of Israel and press them down. But, verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. That's not how this is supposed to work, is it? It's not how it's supposed to work. Pharaoh's plan should have worked. You take a people, you force them into labor, you treat them very poorly. Some of them will die along the way, and they won't be able to have as many children, and we will crush them. They won't grow. Instead, they'll shrink. Their population will shrink. I mean... The, the science on stress, stress's effect on fertility is pretty well known at this point. You take a couple and they're stressed out and it's going to be difficult for them to have children. And now you have an entire people group that has been enslaved and they're out working on these store cities, Pithom and Ramses, and here comes the taskmaster with his whip down the line and all you can think is, I hope he passes by me. And he passes on and they're afraid, and then you hear him beating somebody down the line, and that is going to add stress upon stress upon stress to these people. Exodus 1 is laying out this very horrific situation for the people of Israel in Egypt. But the more they were pressed, and the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, the more they spread abroad. It's a marvelous thing. Pharaoh's plan does not work. But this doesn't stop him. He goes to phase 1.1 in verses 13 and 14. So what do they do when this doesn't, this doesn't work? They respond in dread and fear, and then they ramp up their sin against the people of Israel. They ramp it up. This didn't work, so we have to go further. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You see the repetition here. Ruthlessly, twice. Work, multiple times. Slavery, mentioned multiple times. Moses, in writing, is laying this out and is really adding descriptor after descriptor to drive home the point of how horrible it was for the people of Israel to live under uh, the oppression of Egypt. But that doesn't work either. And so in verse 15, the king of Egypt puts in place phase two. Put in place phase two. And phase two is a command from the king of Egypt to these two midwives, Shifra and Pua. And uh, they wouldn't be the only two midwives in all of, of Israel. These are most likely 
supervisors or maybe head midwives. And there's some discussion as to whether or not they are Egyptian or if they are Hebrew. And I lean towards them being Hebrew uh, because their names are Hebrew. Their names mean splendid and beautiful. And these are splendid and beautiful women. But Pharaoh calls them and he says in verse 16, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Why not just kill all the children? Why just the boys? Well, I don't know exactly what Pharaoh was thinking. We're not told here. We could think, well, if we kill all of the children, maybe the people of Israel will rise up. And we don't want that. Maybe they'll deal with just the baby boys being killed. We certainly know that if you kill off all the male population uh, of a people, that they can't perpetuate their culture, right? There's not going to be many more Israelites in a generation or so if you kill all of the baby boys because the daughters will marry into Egyptian culture and they'll be forced to serve Egyptian gods and then all of a sudden, no more Israel. And so it's a very effective plan if, and certainly playing the long game, the long game. John 8.44 tells us, Satan has been a murderer from the beginning. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Pharaoh's plan is to murder. Satan knows that a Messiah is coming from the seed of the woman. Every opportunity to destroy humanity, to murder them, to kill them, is a good opportunity to stop a Savior. And all this is an affront to the Holy God. Proverbs 6.16 tells us there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. We won't read them all, but haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Innocent blood. That's what Pharaoh is asking Shifra and Pua to oversee. The shedding of innocent blood of little babies as they are born. And this is quite tragic We see it in our own culture. We see it all over the world, the shedding of innocent blood. But this doesn't work either. Verse 17, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And so Pharaoh's plan is foiled again. Phase one, we'll try forced labor. Then we'll ramp that up with slavery and ruthlessness. We'll just make that forced labor worse. And then when that doesn't work and we're looking around at the people of Israel as they are multiplying and continuing to grow mighty and strong, well, now we couldn't go after the adults. That wasn't working. Let's go after the babies. And so we'll kill the baby boys. But that doesn't work because Shifra and Pua stood up to Pharaoh and feared God. And we see down in verse 20 that the people multiplied and grew very strong. And so at every turn, Pharaoh's plan, ruthless and horrific as it is, has not succeeded. And then in verse 22, we see his final phase laid out here in chapter 1 of Exodus. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile 
but you shall let every daughter live. So it's taking from, I'll try to rope in the Hebrew midwives, to now we're doing this perverse and twisted and evil amber alert. You get an amber alert on your phone, all of a sudden everybody's phone in the room goes off and you see, okay, there's some Nissan driving on the interstate that we need to watch out for in case we see it. And there's a license plate there. You know, imagine that everybody pulls their phone out and it says, throw all of the Israelite baby boys into the Nile. This is very close to what happened in Rwanda over the radio. Cut the tall trees. That was the sign to start the genocide and to slaughter everybody. And so that is the plan. And you can imagine the fear that would be in the people of Israel. You can't keep a baby quiet for long. What am I supposed to do? And that's exactly what happens in Exodus 2, which we'll look at next week. But you can't keep them quiet for long. And, and we don't, we aren't told that every single infant was spared. And so you can imagine the heartache and the heartbreak as you have these children thrown into the Nile. And it is awful. And it is wicked. And God is laying out for us here the horrific living situation, the horrific reality that He will eventually save His people from. We need to see how horrible it was so that we can see how mighty and powerful and gracious and merciful God was in redeeming the people. They were strong and mighty, yet they were not mighty enough to overthrow the king of Egypt and to rise up and fight against him. They weren't that mighty. Most uh, scholars and historians think that whoever was Pharaoh at this time, and there's different names that people will throw out, uh, but they think that this was a, a king over Egypt that was a great military leader, a very powerful and strong military leader. And his plan fails. His plan to crush the people of Israel and to diminish their population fails. So Pharaoh had a plan. But God also had a plan here in Exodus one. And it's an unexpected plan. It's unexpected, but it's effective. If we were to write the movie of Exodus 1 or the people of Israel, the way that it would be written now is that you would have this group of 70. Uh, you'd have these Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and all of those men. They would be amazing warriors. But there would only be 12 of them. They would be completely jacked. And you'd see them fighting. And they'd just be taking people out left and right. And you would see this small band. Because we love underdog stories. You'd see this small band of Israelites. And they'd be working on Pithom and Ramses. And you would see somebody getting beaten by a taskmaster. And that would cause the people to snap, right? And then they would rise up. And they would hold up there in Pithom and Ramses. And then all of a sudden they'd start fighting back. And they'd fight their way out of Egypt and we'd be like, yes, they did it. Because that's the story that we would write. That's the story that we would write. But God's plan is unexpected. His plans are always unexpected. Luke 16, 21 to 23 says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter had it in his mind that Jesus was going to come, Messiah was going to come, and he's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to free us from the Romans. We're going to be set free. This is going to be fantastic. We won't be under oppression anymore. And we'll be free. But God's plan was not to establish a kingdom here on earth. His plan was to sacrifice His Son to bear the sins of many. An unexpected plan. And so here... It's unexpected. We don't expect people to thrive under oppression. But that's exactly what Pastor Smith has been preaching about from Acts. The the church in Jerusalem was persecuted. They were oppressed. And what happened? They spread out. And then what happened? The gospel went forth mightily and missionaries were sent out. That's an unexpected plan. Isaiah 55, 8 tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. And then verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There is such a divide between our understanding of God. It is this infinite chasm. We don't understand. We look at this and we, we would look around as the people of Israel and we would see and we would say, this, this isn't what was supposed to happen. We're supposed to be growing mighty so that we can go and possess a land and, and have many descendants. But I've been enslaved. I'm no longer in a position of power. Now, now I'm weak. I've lost all of my influence. This, this can't possibly be right. But God, in His infinite wisdom, saw fit that the people would be oppressed, that He might work to multiply them that He might work to prepare them for the ultimate exodus. And that's what we see. It's an unexpected plan. And something else that is unexpected here, and you can really see it every single time something bad seems to happen, there's always this follow-up, right? All of the people that we had learned about in Genesis, they all died in verse 6. But the people of Israel multiplied. And then they were enslaved, but they were multiplied again. They were oppressed, but then they multiplied. They were told to abort the babies, but they multiplied. At every turn, this bad thing that happens, we expect that to bring the people of down, but God's plan is so unexpected and He's working in such a supernatural way here in Exodus that the people grow. And one of the most wonderful ways here is that He uses these two women. Two women, not mighty warriors, two women against a king, against an entire country. In verse 17, the midwives feared God. And because they feared God, they wouldn't follow through with the command. What is this fear of God? What is this fear of God? Are they afraid of punishment? No, that's not what it is. They're not cowering in the corner afraid that God will lash out at them if they go along with Pharaoh. This fear of God is rather a fear of doing something that would displease Him. Not out of fear of punishment, but out of love. 
Psalm 130 verse 4 says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We're not afraid of people who forgive us for our wrongs. That's somebody who cares about us. That's somebody who's concerned and loves us. The psalmist goes on in Psalm 130 to talk about how he waits expectantly for the Lord. He's hopeful to see Him. He knows of God's steadfast love, His plentiful redemption for all, from all iniquity. That's not a relationship driven by literal fear and cowering in the corner. That's a relationship driven by love. Oh, I love my wife. She's sitting here tonight. And uh, sometimes I can just be standing still in the house and she comes around the corner and she's like, you know, and I'm right there and she's afraid. I startle her. But also on the other side of that, I know that she is concerned about what will be good for me. And I'm concerned about what will be good for her. And so as we're going along in our marriage, I know that I don't always do what is right, but I'm concerned about it. It's my desire to do what is right. So... In a sense, I have a fear of her as I have a fear of God because I want to do what's good for her because God has called me to love her. God has called me to serve her and to sacrifice for her. Oswald Chambers says of the fear of God, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. You fear nothing else. So these women, as they are facing Pharaoh, they are not afraid of him because... Their desire is to serve the Lord. They have a fear of the Lord. Charles Bridges tells us, what is this fear of the Lord? He asks the question. It is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. And so they are not motivated by fear of punishment, but they are motivated with reverence to follow after God. And because they are, these two women, in an unexpected way, protect the people of Israel. They protect the people of Israel. This thinking is the same thinking that led Daniel to go up into his home and to open his windows towards Jerusalem and to get down and pray after he was commanded not to. A new law is passed that says you may not pray to anyone but the king. You must worship the king. And he knew the right thing to do was to continue to pray to his God. And this is the same thinking that caused Peter and the other apostles in Acts 5.29 to say we must obey God rather than men. We must. We can't do anything else. Because these two women were faithful, the people are protected. They loved their neighbors around them. They loved these little boys that they were called to kill. They loved these mothers who were giving birth to these boys. They loved their siblings. They loved their fathers. They loved their neighbor as themselves. And they loved their God. And they followed after Him. Love God with your whole being above everything else and hold nothing back. Pharaoh is obviously not happy about this outcome and he then, since he can't be effective and, and can't sway these, these midwives, he goes out and he tries to have all of the people of Egypt uh, kill these baby boys. Well, we need to make a little aside here 
in our discussion of these two plans, Pharaoh's plan, ruthless and ineffective, and God's plan, unexpected but effective, his plan to multiply and build up and strengthen the people of Israel. And this aside is in verses 19 to 21, or really uh, 18 to 21. We need to deal with with Pharaoh's question to the midwives and their response to Pharaoh. Pharaoh asks them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And in verse 19, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And then in verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Now, what is happening here? It is entirely possible that the midwives have lied to Pharaoh because we know that their plan was not to carry out his command. I would also say it's possible they did not lie. And if you're curious about that, feel free to ask me later. That's not what I'm here to deal with necessarily, if they lied or not. What I want to deal with is if they did lie. Did God bless them because they lied? No. God did not bless them because they lied. God doesn't bless sin. Habakkuk 1.13 speaks of God. Your eyes are too pure to approve of evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. He is holy. He is set apart. He's utterly and infinitely higher than we are. He is righteous. He blesses them because they chose to preserve life. They chose to preserve life. Exodus 20.13, we're given the command, you shall not murder. Born in this command is a command inversely to preserve life wherever possible. We see this as well in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to try and preserve your own life, and so you need to try and preserve the lives of others. And so I wanted to take that very brief aside because that could be a a question. Is he blessing lying? He's blessing their desire to preserve life. If they are lying, and I put that as an if, that's not exactly why they are blessed. So there is an undercurrent of hope throughout Exodus 1. Just as we saw this undercurrent It's throughout Genesis last time. We see it here. The only way that the people would have prospered under this scenario is if the divine hand of God is involved and is preventing the people from being crushed. He is involved. In the first 200 years from Abraham to Exodus, we see about 70 or so people. And then the people of Israel are in Egypt for an extended period of time, uh, 430 years. And and during that time, we see up to about 600,000 men is counted in Exodus 12:33. And if we add women and children to that, there's different numbers that people throw out there, but somewhere between two and two and a half million. Two and a half million Israelites. And so they are growing. The hand of God is at work here. He is the one that is making them fruitful. He is the one that causes the increase. Gamaliel said uh, in Acts 5, when dealing with the apostles, he says, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. 
So they took his advice. You cannot stop or overpower the plan of God. No matter how unexpected his plan is, no matter how much we don't understand how he will work history and work the actions of men to accomplish his will, you cannot overthrow it, though you try. Proverbs 19.21 says that many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Pharaoh planned to kill the male babies, but God planned to protect them. Pharaoh attempted to crush Israel with ruthless slave labor, but God planned to multiply them through that oppression. You might say, you'll go your own way. I'll live my own way. I won't become a Christian. I will never serve God. I will not acknowledge Him. But we know that that is not what will always happen. Philippians 2, 9-11 through 11 tells us exactly what will happen. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him, speaking of Christ, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is His plan. That is His will. Every knee will bow. Though you might think that you won't, you will. God's purposes will stand. Everything He wants to accomplish, He will do in His perfect timing. And He is good. We heard this on Sunday from David Vaughn from Psalm 73. He is good. His plan is good. In Exodus 1, though it is difficult to see, His plan for the Israelites was good. He protected them even through oppression. Psalm 119.68 says, You are good and do good. Read through the Psalms and you will see over and over again people who are going through all kinds of difficulty and oppression and hardship. And what do they say over and over again? Give thanks to the Lord for He is good for His steadfast love endures forever. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. He is good. And He does not change. He tells us this Himself in Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. And we know from Romans 8.28 that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And later on in Romans 8, there are all sorts of difficulties that are listed for the people of God. But those things are for our good as well. Just like this oppression was for the good of the Israelites. So we come to Him with a humble fear and we acknowledge that our wisdom is foolishness. And we acknowledge God. We acknowledge His wisdom and His plan and His purposes. And we say, I don't understand most of the time why. I don't understand why life is this way or this trial happened to me or this hardship or I am dealing with this I don't understand why, but your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts higher than my thoughts. We come back again and again and we say, you are good and do good. 
So the same God who did not allow Pharaoh's plans to destroy Israel is the same God who sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless lamb who is God. The same God who protected these Israelite baby boys through these midwives shelters under his wing all those who call on him and he is able to save them to the utmost. Psalm 34:22 says that the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And do you know who can take refuge in him? Women who have had abortions can take refuge in him. Men who have encouraged their daughters, wives, girlfriends to get an abortion can take refuge in him. People who have oppressed and crushed underfoot those around around them can take refuge in him. Because Christ takes on the sin. Pharaoh laid a heavy burden on the people of Israel. And Christ says in Matthew 11:28, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is good, and he does good." time and time again. And we can attest to it that He has done good for us in forgiving us of our sins if we are in Christ. And He continues to do good by sending the Gospel out and by working in us and through us and carrying us through all sorts of trial and difficulty and hardship day after day after day. And He will do it until He takes you home or He comes again. Let's pray.